Hello again, friends, and welcome to Access City Hall on the Mass and City Channel. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Thanks for joining us on this January 2016 episode. It's often been said that if you've got your health, you've got everything. Well, that's not entirely true, but being healthy is a critical component of your quality of life. And not just your life, but the life of your community as well. That's where Public Health Madison-Dane County comes in, with an agency job description that is a challenge to microphones everywhere. The promotion of wellness, the prevention of disease, and the provision of a healthy environment. This year, the city and county will spend a little more than $10 million on nurses, sanitarians, humane officers, medical personnel, interpreters, nutritionists, and, yes, clerk typists, on services to identify, minimize, and address health, health risks in fields ranging from animal services to water quality. Here to talk about these activities and more is the director of PHMDC, Janelle Heinrich, the director of the Environmental Services Division, Doug Vagley, and Kate Luther, the public health supervisor in the Communicable Health, Communicable health Disease Division. Close. Close enough. Community Health Division. Community Health Division. As you can tell, friends, the eyes are going. It's the first thing to go and, the, and then the speed. Janelle, thanks very much for being with us. Um, we'll be joined in our next segments by Doug and Kate, but I wanted to talk about some big-ticket items sure. with you to start. As noted, uh, PHMDC is a joint agency of the city and county. The combined tax levy in 2016 will be a little more than $10.4 million. Based on assessed valuation, city taxpayers will provide about 46% of uh, that are about 4.8 million county taxpayers, the rest about 5.6 million. Since about half of the county's valuation is city property and land, this means city taxpayers will be ultimately paying somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the taxpayer's bill. Uh, are we getting a commensurate level of service? Oh, that's a that's a tough question. Um, it's not actually a tough question. I think you're getting great service from our health department. Um, I w we also, you know, our budget is 10.8 million tax levy support. It's a total of about 16.1 million um, with fees and, and other revenue that comes in. We do, um, I wouldn't say that we use our, um, where we get our revenue to drive where we do our work. We use the data to drive where we do our work. And so that could mean we put a lot of time for some things in the city, and that could mean we put a lot of times for other activities in different parts of the county. You know, for example, um, our well and septic program, that's happening in the county, that's not happening in the city. Where we look at data around disparate health outcomes, more often than not, those are things that are happening with large population concentrations where we're going to see, um, and, and that's going to be more in our, our urban, you know, clusters. Um, but it doesn't mean that we don't see disparate health outcomes in other parts of the county as well. You don't go quite from A to Z, but you do go from A to W, from air quality and animal services and asbestos to water quality and West Nile virus and WIC. Of all the services PHMDC provides, what do you think are the two or three areas where you have the greatest and most important direct impact? Oh... Well, there's a couple different ways to answer that. If I didn't say all of them, I, I think the staff would be pretty upset. Um, but I, th I think that we provide an incredible impact pretty much everywhere. I think it depends on how we define what the impact is. Um, you know, we do a lot of work 
providing direct services to individuals with um, at risk of poor health outcomes. And that could be through um, our prenatal care coordination programs by case managing individuals with tuberculosis. And I think we do a great service to those individuals and then to the community at large by assuring in the, in the case of TB, and Kate can speak to this in a little bit more, far more eloquently than I probably because as the, as the supervisor of that program, um, by case managing that individual, making sure that they get good clinical outcomes, we're also preventing the spread of the disease in the community. And that's really important. Now, it's not the, um, we don't see high rates of TB. So it's a lot of investment in a, in a small kind of um, population, but a big impact, and that's one way to look at it. And then there's where we look at um, how do we shape systems? How do we shape the policy by taking the data and looking at what's, what's going on in the community? What are the things that are driving poor health outcomes? And how do we use that data and back up from that? Look at the evidence and then work with partners to shape our environment to minimize future health, poor health outcomes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, on that last point, what are some of those um, ways that, that you've, you've taken data, seen where health risks are, and then been proactive to not just address the health risk that has arisen, but stop it from continuing? Well, we'd like to think, I mean, this is an area where we're really trying to grow our capacity, and it's a, it's a mandated function of public health to do so. Um, when we look at rates of obesity in our population, we know that some people, you know, rates are higher in different populations than others. And then you look at what are the factors that are influencing them. And it's not just as simple as um, educating, you know, education to about poor, uh, improved nutritional habits. It's around, like, what do we have access to? Do we have access to healthy foods in our communities? And how do we work with our partners and planning and zoning to, to put health, a health consideration into how do we shape our environment that we live in so that we have more equal opportunities for folks to have access to, to affordable, nutritious foods. Is that why you're involved in, in the neighborhood resource teams? And, a little bit that... of that, yeah, yeah. Um, that's one avenue that we could work with our partners there because that's where there's a great group of, of city staff and in some cases um, community members or alders or other folks, other stakeholders who work in communities kind of all circling together. Um, in other cases, we directly work with we have staff who are working with the city planning department um, and how to, um, in, in the review of the comprehensive plan and how do we use health data in, in, to, to inform that. And does this relate back to the strategic planning that you're currently undertaking? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think it all comes back to our strategic plan, right, where we're trying to um, really um, prioritize and be strategic around what are the what are the, how do we allocate our resources to the biggest impact and we know that there's and and so that we're all aligned throughout the organization to our to our main mission um, and so one of the areas uh, of the strategic plan is in basically around the built environment healthy places and how we're defining that um, and and what do we um, and then how do we invest? What do we look at the, the evidence base for public health outcomes to help think about 
how we how we partner differently and that's definitely where okay so let's look at how we how we work with our planning planning department how do we look with we're um work with the zoning department and the parks departments to think about how do we use the space so that there's um, opportunities for all instead of just perhaps some in different parts of the community to have access and 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 is it just playgrounds or is it walking spaces and 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 how do we engage the community in helping inform some of those decisions and where does public health have the opportunity to do so and where does it where do you have that opportunity all over um, we're, we've got some developing kind of goals with the parks department to, um, to perhaps inform, you know, their comprehensive planning around how do we engage. We have, we have great touch with people in public health. We, um, we provide direct services to a lot of folks individually. We see 6,000 people a month in WIC. How do we learn more about what the needs of the community are from them, the folks that we see, and, and how do we think differently about how do we engage outside of those direct services? And then the things that we're hearing is, you know, these are great services we pr- that, that are being provided by, by public health and other service providers, but those aren't the only things that are um, impacting people's ability to to get to good health. It's how do I have access to transportation? It's really hard for me to get here. Great, you're telling me to go. Um, you and my healthcare provider are telling me that I should walk more. Well, I don't have safe places to do so. How do we channel some of that information and, and share that with others and not just share it from, you know, people aren't using the parks because they don't feel safe in this neighborhood, but here are some ways from a public health perspective that we'd love to share with you around um, and, and, you know, engage in a collaborative way to, to, with, with parks, with streets, with planners, and so on. And is, is that more than just, look, walking is good, fresh fruit is good? Is, is it an ongoing uh, colloquy or ongoing communication between you and the planners and, and planning staff to explain, or just you tell them walking is good, fresh fruit is good, now make it happen? Oh, it's ongoing. It's ongoing. I mean, we have staff that are working together on a regular basis um, to really think about how to how to apply. It's a new way of it's a new way of partnering, and I think it's it'll lead to better outcomes than I think perhaps what we may have done in the past. Like, okay, planners, uh, you know, these streets, this people, there's not a good thoroughfare. There's not enough, uh, you know, central places in our communities for all people to um, engage and go fix it. Right, we're really trying to um, be present and and um, engaged in those on an ongoing basis in those relationships. What are the two or three things that individuals can do to improve public health in the community? Oh, I think. Oh, wow, that's a great question. I'm going to pause on that for a second and think. I mean, really, I think what it comes down to is thinking about how do we um, use data to drive our policies, right, and ask questions around who's benefiting um, from a decision and thinking about the impact that that may have in a disproportional way. So, and be really engaged in the in the public process um, around, you know, e-cigarettes, for example. Um, not everyone may support that from an individual perspective where we have ordinance that allows, you know, to help support smoke-free air. But when we look at bigger health impacts by having a policy that protects the health 
of all by creating smoke-free air, then I think that that's where we can really support, get to a good impact. How much of the strategic planning you're doing now is trying to take into account um, what falls now under the heading of equity? We, we know about racial disparity in criminal justice. We know about racial disparity in, in education and, and the job market. How does racial disparity and racial inequity manifests itself in public health issues. All over, and that's really what I've been referring to kind of throughout is where we look at data, we look at where we have disparate outcomes, and maybe that's by race, maybe that's by gender, maybe that's by sexual orientation, maybe that's by where we live. And then we look at um, what are the conditions that are creating those things and then backing up from there to help inform how do we invest our resources to target a specific population, engage with that population to have them help us understand what are the things that they think would be of benefit to their health outcomes. And we might go in there in a traditional way and say, you know, eat better. And they say, well, that's great. I can eat better, but I don't have enough resources to buy healthy food all the time, or I don't have access to um, transportation to get me to the grocery store. And so... Um, that's really the crux of, of our strategic plan. It's a mission. It's, a, it's in our mission. It's a priority that we have. Um, it's a value that we hold, and we, we use it as an action item to really help inform our, 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 our path forward. But as, as you look at the data of where um, adverse health consequences arise, whether it's in sexually transmitted diseases or obesity or high blood pressure or any one of a number of other categories, are there areas that jump out at you and say, okay, we have, we have a, an imbalance or an inequity or a disparity here that clearly has something to do with, with the racial component? Is there, are there areas that, that jump out at you like that? Well, I think almost all of them because we look at the root causes and we look at the root causes of poor health outcomes and we know that they're impacted by economic opportunity. We know that they're impacted by educational opportunities. And we know that we have a a racial, you know, our health is racialized in in the same way that those other systems are as well. Um, So I wouldn't say are we looking at... um, in particular, um, obesity rates in African Americans, we know that we have disparate outcomes there. But then we're also looking at that within the context of the whole. Are there things that PHMDC is doing that public health agencies didn't do 20 years ago? Yes. Um, I think we're taking a more, the, the, the focus of public health has shifted, right, where we have moved from communicable disease being the killer of the masses to chronic diseases. Um, and so we have to think differently about the services we provide, the activities we engage in. And we also look at where um, we know the evidence uh, shows us that um, when we look at um, evidence for impact, the smallest part, we, we, we often talk about the public health triangle and where we see at the top of the triangle is where we have the smallest impact and that's where we have to the, to the population as a whole, right? And that's where we focus on individuals with education um, and targeted case management. And that's not 
because those are of of inconsequence. They're of incredible value, but where we talk about really trying to focus on the health of the population and not just because we know that if we do this for this particular population, they're going to get better, it actually lifts us all up, is where we're focusing more um, on policy development, really, really intentional thinking around um, how do we use data, what are the... Um, skills that we need in the department to be able to do that. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a shift that's happening nationwide in public health and how we're evolving with that as well. And how secure are you in the data itself? Because a lot of this involves self-reporting of potentially embarrassing things. So are you really secure that the data you're working with on, on people's um, behavior and, and health issues is accurate enough to... Oh, 100%. Because we don't just look at what individuals self-report. We look at, okay, we know we, we get self-reported in some if people come to our clinics. But we also get reporting from healthcare providers. We look at not just health data, but we look at social and economic data as well to help paint a really robust picture of, of health. And actually, um, there are reporting requirements for communicable diseases. I believe there are three categories that people have to report. Uh, mm -hmm. um, do you know how many reports we get in Dane County a year on those oh, categories? Oh, gosh. Let's ask Kate. Let's ask Kate. Let's ask take, Kate when she comes on. We're going to take a short pause for the cause. We're talking with Dr. Janelle Heinrich, the director of the – I'm sorry, did I? Not doctor. Um, I, I, I was but a, I appreciate that esteem. It was a promotion. I, the, I uh, that's, how, that's how high esteem we hold our guests in here. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, access and you all. We'll give you a degree. <laughs> That's degrees. we'll give you degrees. We'll be we'll be back with Janelle, uh, the Thank director you. of PHMDC, and I think we'll go with Kate Luther talk about some communicable diseases. After this short pause for some important announcements, it is the January 2016 episode of Access City Hall on the Mass and City Channel. We'll be here. We hope you come back. To us. This close. Yeah, this close. To Chirac Mordes. This close to making history. Of one team to one team. We are this close. We are this close. We are this close. This close to changing the world. We are this close to making sure no child suffers a crippling disease ever again. We are this close to making history. We are this close to ending polio. Because we are this close to ending polio. We are this close to ending polio. We are this close to changing the world. This close. All we need is you. Is you. Is you. Is you. We are this close. This close. Be a part of history at rotary.org slash and polio. Most people probably think, when it comes to horses, my passion is mainly for training and competition. But they're wrong. Growing up side by side with Australia's wildlife gave me a deep respect for every animal. And if I know my fans at all, I know you have the same passion for animals that I do. So I had to tell you about an organization I believe in, one that makes a difference in the lives of animals all over the world, the Morris Animal Foundation. For more than 60 years, animal lovers like me have trusted Morris Animal Foundation to help animals worldwide enjoy longer, healthier lives. 
I'm asking you to do the same. Visit MorrisAnimalFoundation.org to support animal health and welfare worldwide. Your gift today, mate, will give animals a healthier tomorrow. You and the animals you love will be glad you did. Welcome back to the January 2016 episode of Access City Hall. I'm still Stu. You're still you. We're still talking with Janelle Heinrich, the director of the Public Health Madison-Dane County, and have been joined by Kate Luther, program supervisor in the Community Health Division. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, let's talk about vaccines. Uh, we're, we're taping in, in late December. It'll be January when this airs. Is it too late for people to get their flu vaccines? Not at all. Not at all. We have extremely low levels of influenza in Wisconsin. It's not too late. It's actually a great time to get vaccinated, especially before the holidays, before families start getting together. So definitely go ahead and get your flu shot if you haven't gotten it yet. Now, is the flu just like a bad cold or is it something worse? No, it's not. It can actually be life-threatening in some populations. So a lot of people will experience fever, um, extreme body aches, um, Sometimes people say they feel like they got hit by a Mack truck. Um, so they can have really intense symptoms, worse than a common cold. Um, and sometimes it can lead to death in certain populations, um, immune-compromised individuals, elderly individuals. Um, so that's why we try to recommend that, the, that everybody get their flu shot. And what services does uh, PHMDC provide for flu shots for uh, pop, population of Madison and Dane County? So the immunization program provides immunizations in total to children who are on badger care, so medical assistance, uninsured individuals, both adults and children. Um, and then we also receive um, vouchers from Walgreens. So if they're unable to come into our clinic to receive a flu vaccine, we can give them a voucher to go to Walgreens. Um, we've actually done outreach within our WIC clinics. Um, in November, we actually did a lot of outreach within our own WIC clinics providing immunizations to parents of children at WIC. Um, so it's uninsured adults, um, uninsured children, and children with badger care. And what do we know about the particular flu strains of 2015-2016? I think it's too early to tell right now. Um, the um, CDC, the World Health Organization, they get together in the spring and they try to make the best match possible for the flu strain, um, the influenza strain, knowing kind of what they know and what's circulating. So they try to make their best guess. Um, Again, we have really extremely low levels, so it's too early to tell right now um, whether we have a really good match or not. What do you mean low levels? People just haven't been getting the flu? Right. We haven't seen a lot of influenza in Wisconsin at this point right now. Is that because we're all vaccinated or because we're real lucky or the flu has, you know, gone over to someplace else? Why would that be? Um, unsure right now. It could be the unseasonably mild environment that we've had, the extremely mild environment that we've been experiencing in the last few months, that could be it. Um, it could be a fluke. It could be that we just are going to see um, a late um, rise. But again, influenza can peak anywhere between usually November, December, all the way through um, early spring. So it can happen at any point in time. So we want people to be prepared and get your flu shot. You've got a, a said in a recent news release, quote, vaccines are safe and effective. This, this is more than just the flu vaccine. This, this is uh, like the, the measles, mump, rubella, and, and the Tdap and other things. Vaccines are safe and effective. They offer basic protection for your child from becoming ill, which then also protects others with weak immune systems. Uh, protecting your child also helps protect others. They are also required by law. 
recap for people what they have to do if they've got children, uh, either infants or sixth graders, in terms of the vaccines that they are legally required to obtain for their kids. So upon entering school, um, kindergartners um, are required to have a series of vaccinations. Um, usually it's um, mandated within state statute and it will list out the vaccines. And then again, at um, usually the sixth grade mark, um, they're required again to have boosters of Tdap um, and there might be other vaccines that they might not have had that they just need to catch up on. Um, so they're all state statute um, related um, that they have to have received those vaccines have them on hand right now, all of the the list of them, Uh, but they are required. um, If a parent chooses not to vaccinate their child for any of those, um, they are allowed to sign a personal waiver or religious exemption, um, but we try to discourage that as much as possible. And what incidents of opting out do we experience here in Dane County? seems that nationwide it's the zip codes with the highest income and the highest educational attainment that are most often opting out for some bizarre reason. What, what, what's the experience here in Madison and Dane County? Um, I'd have to look at the mapping that was done earlier in the year. So um, I believe the Wisconsin State Journal had actually kind of published some mapping data of what the exemption rates were. Um, and there are pockets within Madison and within Dane County with higher um, waiver rates. Um, again, that's where we try to focus our efforts and trying to figure out why are people signing the waiver rate? Is it personal exemption? Is it religious exemption? Trying to kind of debunk those myths. Um, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine does not cause autism. Um, I think we're still in this in this era where people still have this firm belief that that causes autism, that the MMR vaccine causes that. And so um, we're trying to kind of debunk those myths, um, trying to discourage the vaccine exemptions as much as possible, working with our school nurses um, and trying to make sure that kids are up to date with vaccinations. Um, A lot of waivers um, that get signed um, are oftentimes because the parent can't get into the clinic to get vaccinated. So sometimes it's not because the parent doesn't want the kid to get vaccinated. It's just they can't get vaccinated within the first 30 days of school. And so there is a law that says you have to have vaccines on file within the first 30 days. So it might not be a case of the parent is refusing vaccination. It could just be that the parent couldn't get the child vaccinated within the first 30 days of school. I don't want to attack people's religious beliefs, but for those parents who, who, ha, who don't have their child vaccinated because, they, because of their medical belief that it will cause autism... As a public health professional, either of you, what goes through your mind when you see, you know, Jenny McCarthy on TV talking about how, as a mom, she knows the MMR uh, can can cause autism, or uh, Dr. Alexander Wakefield with his incredibly misleading uh, and, and fabricated study? What, how how nuts does that drive you? I think it's frustrating. Um, I think what. We are so fortunate to have in in the United States and, you know, and trickle down to here is we haven't seen disease the way we used to see disease. And so and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And that's immunizations. Right. And so it's frustrating to, to think that there um, is a challenge to that science. Right. And it just makes our job much harder in public health um, when there are. um individuals or organizations that are trying to prove otherwise, right, the effectiveness of, of immunization to protect the health of the population. And so 
uh, I think one of the things that we're trying to get better at in public health all over the place, definitely for our health department, is how do we match? What are, what are the messages we need to send out? What are the forms of um, how do we communicate um, differently around um, the effectiveness of immunizations to protect health? Is there a number of non-vaccinated or percentage of non-vaccinated um, children in the community that 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 is the tipping point for threatening herd immunity? I think what we'd like to see is over 90 percent, um, and I don't think we're there um, in some of our in some of our um, for some of our you know immunizations, and that could be because of a lot of the reasons that that Kate said, and 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 um, it could be just because you know for um, for some it's how the series has been provided. Um, are, are folks getting it on time? Are kids getting their series on time? So we have to really drill down into how we're using the data to, to really paint that big picture and where do we focus our efforts? Is it working with the medical providers to assure that um, the series is, is given um, in the timely fashion that it's supposed to, or is it working with the school nurses or different messaging out to the to the public in general around the f- safe, effective nature of vaccines? What sanctions can be applied to parents who refuse to have their child vaccinated and don't and don't meet the standards for one of the accepted uh, waivers? School exclusion. So if they um, do not sign a waiver or they are not vaccinated, they'll be excluded from school until either one of those happens. Have we had any incidents uh, in Dane County of non-vaccinated children um, causing uh, an outbreak of whooping cough or, or any other serious disease? It's hard to tell at this point. Um, there is... Um, you know, with any communicable disease, there's going to be some underreporting. Um, so there are going to be cases out there in the community that we just don't know about. Um, of the pertussis cases that we do know about, many of them are already vaccinated. But we, what we see with that population of already vaccinated pertussis cases is that their illness is much more mild. Um, so that's actually a good thing, that the pertussis vaccine is actually doing some good in either short, shortening the duration of illness or lessening the severity of illness. Um, but it's really hard to tell what, what proportion or what numbers of unvaccinated are causing the disease in itself. I mentioned before the break the three categories of reporting. Briefly, what, how do those break down and do they make sense to you, the, the levels of reporting requirements? Yep, so there's three categories. Category ones are the most urgent. So these are going to be like tuberculosis, um, more, of the, more of the urgent referrals, um, measles. Um, things that can spread and are very communicable and can be very deadly in certain populations. Um, those are required to be reported within 24 hours to the health department, um, including on the weekend. So if somebody suspects a, a, a measles case, um, we have an after-hours reporting mechanism where somebody would report that. Um, the category two is basically less urgent referrals. These are a lot of referrals that include some of your enteric or stomach bugs, so salmonella, E. coli, campylobacter. Um, along with most of your sexually transmitted infections. Um, and those must be reported within 72 hours. Um, and then there's a category three, and that's selective to HIV AIDS specifically. 
and who reports? Does the healthcare provider, does, does the parent, does the patient, who does the reporting? Anybody can report if they know about it. So we've had daycare providers call in and say, I have a kid whose parent said the kid was diagnosed with pertussis. Or we've had school nurses report. Um, but typically it's the medical provider or the laboratory that does the diagnostic testing. Do, do outside parties like, health, like, like daycare or, or school personnel, do they have mandatory reporting requirements the same way they do if they're aware of a sexual assault or something like that? Um, I would. I don't know if it's necessarily mandatory reporting, but um, definitely if they're aware of it, they should be reporting. Yeah. You, you mentioned sexually transmitted infections. There was a report that um, was given to the PHMDC a few months ago. Some of the findings were Dane County is among the seven counties with the highest STI rates in chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. We are below the target rate for HPV vaccination. Over 37% of births from 2009 to 2011 were unintended. Nearly a third of births were conceived less than 18 months since the previous birth, which is an indicator of uh, low birth rate and and, and other problems. Um, Our HIV rate is higher than the overall rate in Wisconsin. Um, is there any good news in, 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 these, in the area of sexually transmitted diseases and, and sexual and reproductive health? I think the good news is there's a lot of good work that's going on, whether it's within the health department, whether that's in partnership with others, or whether it's by others, right, of, of who, who we serve. Um, so I, I think that there, there there's a lot going on. There are... Um, you know, we provide a lot of direct services to um, women at risk of poor birth outcomes, and there's a lot of other good service providers there to help case manage them to better health outcomes, right? And that's not just for um, the mom in that pregnancy, but then spacing that out in the birth, but then where do we... Um, where can we work to help inform, you know, educate, and that's where we go back up um, on our triangle of, of like, how do we increase birth spacing? Um, I think that there's opportunity to create a more collective understanding of, of like sexual and reproductive health as a whole um, and, and really think of not just think of it so discreetly. Um, STIs is different from reproductive health. How do we, how do we engage in different conversations um, around the whole of, 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 our, of our life there? One of the the really dismaying findings in, in the report is that the rates for STI among blacks is ten per, ten times that among whites. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a, a box on on the uh, website where we uh, talk about this. Why the racial disparity? Oh, that's tricky. I think it's really tricky. But the the thing that we um, want to be really clear about is it's not necessarily related to sexual behavior. Um, it's not necessarily related to more risky sexual behavior. I think it's it's where there's a confluence of of, of um, determinants kind of all coming together around um, the the size of the population, um, the um, access to health care. And and other things that keep us well. Kate, uh, within your area, you've got um, refugees as well. 
What special challenges and what special population are you dealing with in, in that aspect? Um, so the populations that have come this year so far in the fiscal year have been Iraqi, Afghani, Bhutanese, and a couple Burmese. Um, so those are the primary um, populations that we have served in the last year. Um, in terms of kind of um, special needs or special concerns, um, I think one of the um, special concerns is um, literacy and health literacy and language literacy. Um, and that has a huge impact on health outcomes later on down the road. Um, a really good example is um, trying to teach somebody who does not know what primary care is or trying to teach somebody that you go to your dental provider every six months for a checkup, you don't just go when you have dental pain, has been a really hard concept to teach to individuals where all, all they know is you just go to the doctor when you're sick. And I'm hoping that you're working with Literacy Network in, in working on health literacy issues. Yes. So um, Departments of Children's and Families has contracts with Lutheran Social Services, who is kind of the social service agency, along with Literacy Network. They offer the free English classes to our refugees um, that come into Dane County. Um, we also work with um, Madison Area Technical College or Madison College um, for some of those individuals who have higher um, English capacity. Um, so some people that might have been um, contract interpreters for the American government in Iraq some of them have higher um, language skills, and so they will often go to Madison College for their courses. Do you have any particular cultural issues that this client group represents? Yeah, I mean, with any new population that comes, there are going to be some cultural implications, um, especially with our Iraqi and Afghani individuals. A lot of them are Muslim, and so dealing with kind of some of the cultural barriers in terms of can somebody see a male provider or can a patient see a female provider if they're male, that has huge implications when seeing a community provider. Um, even stepping into a cab, can a female... Um, refugee get into a cab driven by a male provider, a uh, male cab driver by herself, or does she need to be accompanied by her husband? And, and where have you turned for cultural sensitivity to know the answers to these questions? So a lot of the work that we work um, closely with is Lutheran Social Services. They're the social agency that um, resettles the refugees within Dane County. Um, so we work closely with them, and we work closely with our refugee, our state refugee health program as well. And within refugees, do you also um, have programs or particular uh, projects that relate to the homeless? We don't. I mean, unless they um, qualify for one of our other services that we provide. We're not a case manager of the homeless, of a homeless population unless they are perhaps pregnant. Um, they might have TB or, or you know, those would be the need an immunization. Right, and then they, we would we would case manage them for those conditions, and then work with our partner service agencies to assure that there's more wraparound care and services provided. Okay, thank you. We're going to take a short pause for some more important announcements. When we're going to say goodbye to Kate Luther, the program supervisor in the Division of Community Health, and be joined by Doug Vagley, the environmental. <clears throat> Health Director of Environmental Health for Public Health, Madison, Dane County. Well, thank you. It is the it is the January 2016 episode of Access City Hall. We'll be right back. We hope you join us. If I ride, I will know the way the trees smell after the rain. I will grow a heart so strong that hospitals will take Tuesdays off. 
If I ride uphill, I will eventually get to ride downhill. That's how it works. If I ride, my breath will fill the air instead of smoke and car exhaust. If I ride, road rage will turn into laughter. And I won't be a boy or a girl. I will just be a rider. If I ride, I will be strong. It could cost you around $10,000. You'll face major legal fees, major fines, and steep insurance penalties. You could lose everything. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. Welcome back to the January 2016 episode of Access City Hall. We're talking public health. We are still with Janelle Heinrich, the director of PHMDC, and been joined by Doug Vagley, the director of the Division of Environmental Health. Thanks very much for being with us, Doug. Your job focus goes from A to W, air quality to water quality, with some West Nile virus in there as well, along with other things like beaches and hazardous materials, um, septic systems, food protection. I want to go to the, to the bottom and talk about West Nile virus for a second. Uh, we found, or you did the, the test and determined that there was a bird in Dane County that tested positive for West Nile virus this past year. Uh, since 2002, we've had 23 cases in Dane County. That's almost exactly 10% of the statewide total. There were four cases here in 2014, none the year before, what happened after you tested after the bird tested positive this past summer? Were there any reported human cases? Uh, not that I'm not that I'm aware of that we had any reported human cases. We use that as a sentinel to let us know that yes, West Nile virus is in the community. Um, so we need to start taking some actions to make sure that people are taking personal protective measures to prevent mosquito bites. Um, and then we will also uh, part of the program is monitoring a lot of the storm retention ponds and other areas where water collects to uh, see if we're finding the larva of the mosquito that uh, is a carrier for West Nile virus. Um, and then we treat those sites when we find the, the larva at a, uh, a level that needs to be uh, taken care of. And how serious is West Nile virus to the human? Uh, it uh, could be very serious. In most cases, it's very similar to the flu. Um, and if it's uh, very young, very old, uh, it can be more serious than uh, the, uh, the uh, regular, uh, regular uh, normal age, healthy individuals that could fight the infection off. But it, could, it can put you down for a few days. Now, if a bird tested positive in 2015, does that have any implications for 2016, or is it a whole new story next year with, with a new cycle of mosquitoes and a new cycle of... Well, if we don't get any uh, colder weather, I mean, <laughs> but, but uh, uh, yeah, the new cycle will start next year. We'll test again. Um, inevitably, we'll find it at some point in time in one of the birds. 
um, uh, regardless, we'll be treating those those uh, ponds, the retention ponds, um, and other uh, water that uh, uh, has accumulated that uh, is showing uh, larvae. When you say almost assuredly, yeah, we'll find it again, is this something that we can pretty much assume is always going to be here now, that we're oh, there's always going to be some mosquitoes out there carrying West Nile virus? Yes. Yeah. That's not good. Safe to say. So, so the basic strategy is avoid getting bitten by mosquitoes, and take but, and take precaution, you know, precautions mm-hmm. to keep your to keep standing water, you know, away from where you live and and you play, or to to be mindful of what um, protections you need to to take for yourself. Exactly, Re- reducing the habitats where uh, the mosquitoes live and breed, and and eliminating them so that we don't have the the issues. I mean, we're still going to have mosquitoes. Um, but hopefully it really reduced the rates of, of West Nile virus. Sticking in the animal kingdom, threat to humankind and, and threat to other animals, let's go to animal services, um, dealing with dangerous animals. Uh, I read an administrative record of a, a dog, Sheba, who th- there's been a determination that um, should be humanely euthanized for being a threat to other dogs and apparently humans, but this hasn't happened yet. It has not. It is, uh, there's been an appeal of that determination. And so we're kind of going through that process now. How big a deal or how, how large um, a function of PHMDC is the whole issue of animal services? So we have six staff. So, yeah, sorry. Six, six, we have six officers. Six officers um, we investigate probably about 40 to 50 dangerous animals a year, um, and then uh, we pro- uh, we're averaging around 500 bites a year in the county that we are following up on a, on a regular basis. We have to follow up on on every bite. Every bite has to be re- reported, um, and then we follow up and uh, ensure the quarantine of the animals. And what is the standard for the various levels of response? I guess the responses go from oh, just don't do it again, to euthanized? I mean, it's a whole spectrum of responses that you could have? Yes, exactly. We will look at uh, how many interactions we've had with this animal, what the interactions have involved, um, if there's a severity of bites, who it's involving, if it involves other dogs, if it involves humans. Um, we take uh, a stepwise approach um, when we uh, see an animal that we think should be uh, looked at a little mm. closer, it gets uh, forwarded up. We start an investigation on it. Um, after we've done the whole investigation, we'll determine if we're going to declare the dog dangerous or not. And what does a determination that a dog is dangerous, does that have a – what happens next? And, and does it always get the same – does that determination always get the same no, next step? or it, it doesn't. I think it depends on um, – we've had three incidents – um, and it's been your dogs running at large. So maybe you don't get a dangerous dog determination, but you would get a, um, you need to take some better precautions to keep your dog on your property, right? And then we kind of go from there. Um, and it may be you, your dog now maybe has bit someone or it's been acted aggressively. There may be recommendations of um, your dog has to wear a muzzle when it's on leash, or you need to have a fence, or you need to work with a behavioralist, or things that they, they really range. Yeah, they run the gamut of different restrictions that we'll place on the animal. Okay. Um, moving on to food protection. Um, I was on, uh, which is also within your areas, I understand it, um, 
I was on at the Willie Street Fair last year, and I was going to buy food from a vendor, and noticed that he was making sandwiches and not wearing any gloves. And I decided I, I'm going to go someplace else. Was was I being overly skittish, or is that perfectly fine to to be preparing food with, without wearing gloves? I tell you, that's a that's a, a great, well-educated consumer. Um, if it's food that's going directly into your mouth without any further preparation, it has to be handled by somebody that is using gloves in most cases. There are a couple of exceptions that they can get variances. But if it's a ready-to-eat food that's going directly from preparation to you eating, that should be handled by a person wearing gloves. If you see something like that, that the, the gloves aren't being used in that situation, it is best to, to walk away and avoid that vendor. Maybe you have to call us. Yeah, oh yeah, and we, yeah, we certainly like a call too. The, the, uh, we're probably around 80% of our foodborne illnesses are caused um, from employee, improper employee hand washing. I mean, that's how serious hand washing is. Um, and in a situation like that where it's a temporary restaurant, the hand washing facilities are not like they are at home. So it becomes even more important that people are using those secondary barriers or protections like gloves to prevent uh, that transmission of, of disease pathogens to you to, to keep you from getting sick. So, so do you have inspectors going to things like um, the, the festivals and, and the fairs and just sort of looking to see how, how the operations are going? Yes, absolutely. We have, uh, uh, we're working uh, every weekend uh, pretty much. There's, there's now temporary events year-round that uh, we're, we're going to and inspecting on a, on a regular basis. In addition to our normal, we have approximately 3,000 establishments that we're looking at on an annual basis. And how, how many restaurants within your purview fail? And what, what happens to a restaurant that doesn't make the grade? It's rare. It's rare that that, that happens. Um, but you can be rest assured that if it does not make the grade, that restaurant will not be open. Um, we will not uh, walk away from a restaurant that we wouldn't eat in. Um, so if there are a number of risk factor violations, then we would, we would shut that restaurant down until they could make the, the adequate corrections to ensure that the, the public's health is not going to be. And sometimes that might be a day, and sometimes that could be longer um, or permanent. But well, that's exceedingly rare that it Yeah, that's very permanent. rare. Permanent. Do you remember the last time you had to shut someplace down? 2013? Permanently? Or just at, at all? Oh, we've, we've closed places earlier this year for periods of time that for them to make the corrections that we noticed on the inspection. Okay. Um, you've got uh, beaches with, within your, your jurisdiction, and, and there was a, a news release that was put out saying, don't swim in, in the blue-green algae. How hard is it to, for people to understand if it's bubbling pond scum, you shouldn't be? I mean, that would seem to be self-evident, wouldn't it? Uh, it? It would, but I suppose if it's a 100-degree summer day, and then maybe they'd want a chance to cool down, but uh, it could be uh, a, a pretty unhealthy uh, risks that you're taking getting into anything with the blue-green algae and the, the toxins that are produced. How does, are, are there trends in the water quality in beaches? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it holding steady? Can you make any generalizations? I would say it's generally holding steady. The blue-green algae, I think, is, is more or less increasing a little bit. 
the uh, the bacterial load is is staying somewhat the same. And is this from geese? Is this from toddlers pooping in the water? What what where is this from? Fracking? Is this from heavy metals? Where where, where are the problems coming from? Geese. Ducks, wildlife, uh, you know, always would would be an issue. Um, that goose poop is really nasty. Stuff. <laughs> the uh, uh, runoff from from other, uh, uh, you know, from the agricultural farms around Dane County or other activities, even from the uh, uh, runoff of uh, parking lots and, and hard surfaces, that's all going into our lakes. We're doing a better job now of, of cleaning up the water before it gets to the lake, but that's. That's where most of that bacterial loading is coming in. Are you seeing any uh, positive impact from the activities of groups like the Clean Lakes Alliance to try and deal with phosphorus runoff and, and, and the other uh, contaminants? Yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. They're a, they're a strong partner, and they do a, a wonderful job of, of testing. And also uh, one, one place that they excel at is public education and getting that word out that, you know, the, the beaches are here for us to enjoy. Let's enjoy them, but do it in a safe manner. You've got hazardous materials and clean sweep in in your purview. What what are things that we should not throw out in the trash? Oh boy, there are a lot of things. I would just uh, mention that clean sweep uh, did originate <coughs> in the health department, and as that program grew um, and became larger and um, became uh, uh, more valuable. Um, well, I shouldn't say more valuable. It just grew, and it, it uh, then was since transferred from the public health department to uh, Dane County Public Works, who run the uh, clean sweep program. Um, but things that should not be thrown away, I mean, can, can start at fluorescent lights, uh, uh, computers, any electronics, uh, paints, um, uh, batteries. I'm trying to think of all the things that I've taken in recently, um, and there's uh, just about anything that that uh, you can can take in versus uh, putting it into the waste stream, which goes to the landfill, which you know eventually can affect our groundwater. You've also got smoke-free and tobacco control. 88% of all property losses in Madison over a period of time due to smoking-related fires in multi-unit properties. So it's not just bad for your health, it's, it's bad for your wallet, it's bad for other people's wallet right. as well. That's an amazing statistic. Right. right. And it's all the more reason why um, we really want to work with um, landowner, or, you know, landlords and, and property owners, if there's, you know, to help support their efforts in going smoke-free. It's not just for the benefit of um, the individuals who are living there, but it's for the kind of the pocketbook, as you mentioned, of the folks who are managing those properties. Are you finding though this is one of the smoke-freest communities around? I, I, I can go months without actually encountering somebody smoking a cigarette. I think we've made great, yeah. great strides. Yeah, we're in good, we're in good shape. But I mean, there's always something coming around the bend um, from the tobacco industry that we need to be mindful of. Yeah, well, when you're a merchant of death, you always got to find new, uh, new customers. Um, something that will have ended by the time this program airs in January is the use of paper checks in the women, women, infants, and children nutrition program because you're going to a debit card called EWIC. Um, the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program has been helping low-income pregnant and postpartum women and their children under five 
purchase healthy, nutritious food for 40 years. And we've got about a minute and a half left. How will EWIC change? Um, how will this affect the participants and improve the program? Oh, I think it's just awesome for um, clients and for staff, really. I mean, there's such um, a challenge to using the um, the paper vouchers. There's a lot of stigma associated with it. This will allow for far more seamless transactions, both from WIC um, to the individual and from the inv- individual to where they're purchasing their their foods. So it'll be, I think, just incredibly value-added to, to everyone to, to have that available. And how widely will it be available? Do the stores, will the stores have to do anything new in terms of new equipment, where they have to get these new chip readers for the new credit cards? They have to make Yeah, any- we've been working with... Um, the, the vendors, our WIC staff have been working with the vendors since I think early summer and really supporting their, their rollout from a educational perspective and then supporting their transition to this, to this new, um, product. So, um, I think we're, we wouldn't be rolling out if we weren't certain that there wasn't, um, widespread, um, application or availability of that resource. So we're ready to go. It's happening. We are, we are almost out of time. What's the one thing, one positive development you want in the public health field in 2016? Mm. The most important thing we could do to improve public health in Madison, Dane County. I invest in your local health department. Well, that's an unbiased <laughs> answer, isn't it? And, and we hope that the uh, previous hour of information about the public health of Madison-Dane County has uh, convinced you that would be a good thing. I want to thank Doug Vagley, the director of the Division of Environmental Health, Kate Luther, the program supervisor in the Community Health Division, and General Janelle Heinrich, the director of PHMDC. On behalf of everyone here at Access City Hall and Madison City Channel, thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks.